So as Dole told you, we are in Luke 24 today, the last chapter in the book of Luke, where we have been following Jesus, his work, his life, um, his teachings, his activities. And so this marks the last week in our six-month series entitled, This is the Way. And so I've really enjoyed looking at the book of Luke in this 10,000-foot view, more from the vantage point of Luke as an author. What was he telling us? What was he driving at? Why did he put things in there the way he did? He, he claims he wrote this book in an orderly fashion. He did, he did it differently than the other three gospel writers. And so looking at the messages that Luke has for us has really been fun. So like any good author, Luke has told the story in a way that has led us and set us up for the climax. And it's made up of two events, to be sure. The cross that we talked about last week, that's the first one. It's Jesus' crucifixion uh, on that implement of capital punishment. And that is a centerpiece of the story. It's, and not just of the story Luke's telling, but of our Christian faith. The cross is at the center of that. It's important. And it, however, as important as the cross is, like elevated just as high as it deserves... And it's hard for Christians to grasp this just in our normal, everyday practice of Christianity. Without the event of today, the one we're going to cover today, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the cross would not contain the power that it does. It would not, we wouldn't dare make jewelry out of the cross and wear it around our necks. We wouldn't put it on top of our church buildings. We wouldn't use it as an icon of all that the kingdom delivers to us and represents. We wouldn't do it. And the reason I know that, we need chapter 24 for chapter 23, the the crucifixion, to have its power. And the reason I know that, I'm not just making that up. Paul, later when he's writing the Corinthians, he says it overtly. Listen to this, the implications here. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. And then those also who've fallen asleep, all your loved ones that have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. (laughs) There's a lot riding on the resurrection. The resurrection packs the cross. You can't have the resurrection without the cross. But you can't have the cross in the way that we have it without the resurrection. So let's read. Let's read this last chapter in the surprising resurrection of Jesus and also see what Luke embeds in his story at the end of, his, of this volume for his readers as he finishes his book. Starting in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, And on the third day be raised again? Then they remembered his words. 
When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen laying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So many people react to the story of last week, the crucifixion, the death, and burial of Jesus with some disdain. There are people that I've actually spoken with and read about when they're evaluating our Christian faith. And this is, don't be too hard. This is kind of understandable. They get into the story and they find out that we believe the Bible depicts our God as a father, a good, good father. And yet this good, good father who supposedly has this unquenchable, unspeakable love for his only son stands idly by while this massive move of injustice happens and his son dies. So if you think of that, you can see this complaint. That's the kind of God you want me to worship, a God that you depict as a father and he's supposedly a good father, but he lets his son die unfairly, suffer unfairly. Can you think of any dad on earth that would allow that to happen for their kid? And you would call them, go, oh, they're good, good father. They, call, they go as far as to title that, the divine child abuse. And so you can see, just at that level, to think that there's this father that's standing by, watching their son die with no response. You can see the complaint there's some in your head. You can kind of go, yep, okay, I see what you're saying. But here's the deal. That's not the end of the story. Not our story. You have to stop at chapter 23 to believe that God had no response. You've got to go on to chapter 24. And if you'll go on to chapter 24, difficult as it is to believe, he did respond. The resurrection of his son was his response to the unjust death of his son. Now, he could have done what any of us human dads would do. I would hope. And that's anything to keep our kid from suffering. Anything to keep our kid from dying. That's what we would imagine we would do. And I think that's right. I think a good, good earthbound father would do that. But God is a heavenly father. And he has what he's trying to deliver to us. And that is a larger, a truer perspective on reality. He knows this short time we're here on earth is not everything. It's not even a blip on the radar. There's a much larger, more eternal story that he lives under and that he knows. And so he's not doing what any human dad would do because every human dad is helplessly, futilely limited in their perspective. And that's not wrong. That's appropriate. But we have to grant God as being a heavenly father. He did a kind of love that only God could do. 
Because he knows something else that he's trying to get across to us and that we will amen when we preach it or when we hear it preached, but then we'll forget. And that is everything on this earth, everything on this earth has value really only in as much as it affects the other life, eternity. Everything on this, that's the Christian view. We don't stay that with that, do we? We don't adopt that very well. We don't live under that very often. There are things I will probably do today that is not thinking of eternity. It's just thinking of today or tomorrow. And so God does not suffer from that fatal flaw that we are stuck with. He always perfectly sees the long game. He sees eternity. So hear me, church. I've never thought of this before till this time going through Luke. It would have been massively unloving of God as a dad to Jesus to steal the eternal joy that Jesus was embarking on by limiting and saving him from momentary suffering and pain and death. If you can, for just a minute, leave your earthbound perspective and go to a heavenly father's perspective, it would have been massively unloving of God as the father of Jesus Christ to step in and intervene on what, from an eternal perspective, it's not from ours, but from an eternal perspective, momentary suffering and death. He didn't stand idly by. He was in on this thing. And he did respond three days later with resurrection. See, you would probably do that too. Dads, with your kid if you could. That's what he did. And I'm telling you, it would have been unloving for him to stop it. How do I know that? I'm not making this up. He would have been stealing Jesus' joy. It says in Hebrews 12, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. faith, Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God are you hearing this Jesus did it because he too adopted his father's eternal perspective and if that dad came in I know no I I'm you're not calling the 10,000 angels I am get down there I can't handle it my son is suffering I can't let him die I'm a good good father they're going to sing that 2,000 years from now and I need to be a good good father so I got to stop this from happening and that son would have said you're stealing my joy dad you're stealing my joy I tried to think of an analogy of what this would be like and I I came up with lame ones I'll give you a lame one like stealing for a man who's training to be an Olympic athlete but the dad steps in says I'm not going to let you go through the pain and suffering of training he'd be stealing his joy a better one The best one I found is uh, saving a woman's pain in childbirth because I can't handle, you know, a dad saying, I can't handle my daughter going through that pain and stealing the motherhood that she so longed for. Jesus did the cross for the joy in it, Scripture says, and that is his joy was sitting at the right hand of God and watching the access he made for you to come into their presence and to be with them for eternity. And have eternal and abundant life forever. So we couldn't see this clearly. Not until the resurrection. Chapter 23. Stop there. I think it's right to wonder if he's a good, good father. But that's not the whole story. And we have it. God has this one of a kind divine love. I know we're supposed to imitate 
Jesus. We're supposed to imitate God, Paul says. You know, that we want the kind of love he has. And I'm just going to confess to you, I've tried my whole life to do it. And this is where I hit a lid in my capacity to love. And, and I've told this before, but it's kind of an epic story in my history that has thrown me to my knees in awe. It's when I had kids and shade my firstborn he was about two i think i had callie when i walked into the bedrooms and i was putting them to bed they were in bed and i was praying for them and i just pulled up a chair in shade's room and i started praying and i was thinking about the gospel story and i started imagining giving up the life of my son for those that i love at that time i was youth minister for a decade i loved my youth group with my life i i mean i just would do anything for them and so i'm super spiritualizing everything because that's how I roll and I'm going, how can I, I'm going to visualize giving up my son, thinking of a circumstance where I could give up my son for these that I love and I couldn't do it. And I got a little distraught because I do have a call on my life to, to love like Jesus, to love like God, to try to imitate them in how I live. And, and I kind of was getting distraught and tearing up a little that I couldn't do it. I can't do it. And two verses came into my head. I know right from God to explain this to me. He set me up. John 15, it says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But God so loved the He gave his son. Shudder in awe, church, at the story Luke is telling. This level of love that God has for you. He is a good, good father. He is a good, good father. He offers a love that we, that we can't do. Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friend. That's, that's the greatest. There's no love greater than that for man. This is a divine love that God has. That's our Father. Verse 13. So now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other, of course they were, about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you're walking along? They stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked, are you only a visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, Then some of the companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses 
and the prophets. Way back. He goes way back. Moses and the prophets. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. I love this. He's pretending. I'm going to keep going here. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture? Okay, so the, the guys that I've been studying all year for, for this series, they love this story. They think this is one of the most amazing little stories ever penned. Okay, and so there's a lot here. But the big question for me as I'm reading it from my vantage point is, why is it here? Okay, we're talking about the resurrection and we've got the scene where they, the women go, they find out, they come and tell the apostles that he's, he's not in the gray. Then we have this story because the next one is, then the apostles, Jesus comes to them and tells them. So it seems like he comes to the women, they tell them they don't believe it, then he comes to the men and then they believe it. Okay, and as always, the women are right. And so, but why is this story, why is this little walk of these two, Cleopas and and N.T. Wright says probably his wife because they invited him into their house. But why are these two walking and having this little action with God? What is Luke doing? It's not necessary to the resurrection story, to the awe in that. So why is it here? So I, I was asking that while I was reading it and I noticed there's three things that happens here in this scene to Cleopas and his companion that I think Luke wants to happen to everyone, anyone, and everyone who reads his book. Further, I think these three things that happen to Cleopas and his companion are the three things God wants to happen to every human being ever. And these are the three things that happen there. Their hearts burned within them, their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus. I think Luke wants anyone who reads his book, and I believe God wants anyone who hears of Jesus and his story in the gospel for their hearts to burn within them, for their eyes to be open, and for them to recognize Jesus, who he is, what he's here for, what he's doing, what he's done. Those three things. So that made me ask, so maybe, maybe Luke is giving us a little template of this is, this is the response that should be happening in you to this story. And that makes me go, well, how did it happen in this little story? What did Jesus do, like in an immediate human sense, to have that kind of fruit in the person, in the people that he's walking with? How did they come upon this experience of their heart burning, their eyes open, their recognition of Jesus? And how do we, I think maybe if we can answer that, how do we get that for ourselves, and give it to others. Make sense? So, what did they do? You're going to be just shocked at how simple this is, and how you're like, I already knew that, most of you. It was in the context of Scripture and fellowship. 
sincere engagement with the story of Scripture and sincere engagement at the table of fellowship. Those were the two things that the Holy Spirit used, even with Jesus sitting right there, for their hearts to be burning within them, their eyes to be open, and the recognition of Jesus. That's what happened. Do you see it? The scripture, it says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That means he's telling the story. The books of Moses are the first five books. The prophets were basically the rest of them. He's telling the story of scripture and how it all leads to him, where he fits in the story. And they go on to say, when he did that, our hearts burned within us. It's not a proof text that makes your heart burn. A proof text, you can learn something. But it's the story, God's story, that brings forth something in our hearts that makes us lean in, that fills us with potential and hope. We find ourselves in it. Something happens when we hear the story of Scripture, beginning with Moses and the prophets and leading all the way through to Jesus. That's when their hearts burned within him. But that's not when they recognized Jesus, did you notice? It just woke something up in them. A need. A desire. There's something longing in me. They just thought he was going to redeem Israel. Remember he said that. We thought he was going to come in and kick out the Romans and set up this kingdom. They're just like everyone else. They thought they had a lock in on what the kingdom's supposed to look like. He goes, you're so foolish. Let me, just, just give me a minute. And he takes them through it. Do you see what the kingdom is? Something burns inside of us. Something that as human beings were built for pops up and it wants to be satisfied. And there's even a little hope that it might be because the simple matter that the story exists that we can find ourselves in makes us think we belong there and it keeps pointing forward as if there's satisfaction for what your heart's burning for. Now, where, when did they recognize Jesus? That was in fellowship. Evidently, the story of Scripture... Bible study, that's not enough. That's not enough. It's not just the background of God's history and his narrative that does it. It's fellowship. You see it? It says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. The story of God and church. Scripture and church. A sincere engagement with Scripture and then an engagement with people. That's the context here that their hearts burned within them. Their, their, their eyes were opened and they recognized finally who Jesus was. So that's our marching orders for this whole book of Luke. Here's your marching orders. Get into Scripture. And not just get into scripture to study it. It's to get into the story that's there. That means you're going to have to read it a certain way. Maybe a way you haven't read it before. It took Jesus. These good Jews had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. All good Jews did. But he told it to them in a way that opened up the scriptures to them. They confessed that. He opened them up to us. You need that too. Get into scripture and get into fellowship with people in the context of Christ. I, you see what, I just love Jesus. Jesus tricked them 
into inviting him in. And please, they begged him, please, please, stay, Jesus. Step one. But then do you see what happened in the house? Jesus takes over. He takes the bread. He took this house. This is my house now. I'm taking the bread, and I'm giving it to you. He's now, this is in the context of a word that we call hospitality. The welcoming of each other in God's name. And it was then, then, that table fellowship, that's how the Jews would have read this, in the context of that sharing of bread, that's when they recognized Jesus. And so we're called to that. Now, I told you, we, you know, we're leaving, we're leaving the book of Luke, but we're taking serious these two calls here coming up this fall. So one is, and this is true all the time, like I don't know if you make it your habit to come an hour early and go to Bible class, but those are good classes that give you the story of Scripture that will help you do that. You need to do it on your own too, but it's a great context to do it in, in a smaller fellowship than, than this one and, and in the story. And we're having a special class this fall on the Bible, on how to approach Scripture through this lens of story. Okay, now, if that sounds familiar, it's because some of you were here a couple of years ago in 2019 when I did a sermon series on the Bible. We're usually talking about what's in the Bible. This series is actually talking about the Bible. And we're trying to unlearn how we might have inherited how we approach Scripture and instead approach it in the way that opens the Scriptures to us and makes our hearts burn within us. That's what we're after. And so... I've been asked to redo that sermon series, but in a class format. So not all of you will come to that class. Not all of you are inclined to it. That's fine. But I want you to know we will be offering that class. But all the, if you're not going to come down, come to a class. Take the story of Scripture seriously. And then second, and a little more to our point in this gathering, we're about to, in two weeks, we're about to have our annual regroup time. That's when our small groups that... I know hibernated during the summer. We're weird. We hibernate in the summer sometimes. Some have kept going. They relaunch this fall. We kind of just rally our energy and we get back into our all-important small group fellowships. That's a really important value that we have here at Southwest. And so some groups that, uh, some of you will relaunch your groups. Some will start new groups. Some of you will join groups that are already going that will welcome you to that table of fellowship. Well, during, we always pick a topic to kind of focus on, and this fits hand in glove with regroup. We're going to be talking about hospitality. Like what that is really. It's not like, you know, what we picture is maybe um, Martha Stewart. Right? That's what uh, a preacher I'm listening to uh, that Julie sent, sent to Kyle, who sent to me, said. He said, that's what we think of naturally. But it's not that. It's a lot more biblically. And so we're going to look at this practice of hospitality. So these two things, if they truly are at the climax, to interrupt the climax of Luke's story, he puts this little story in there as a model of how we're to react and how to create an environment where people can react, you and others, We're taking it seriously. We want to focus on that hospitality that Jesus offered these guys and that they offered him. And we want to take seriously our getting into the study of the story of Scripture. So that's what's coming up next, and I hope you'll be excited about that. So let's finish Luke now. And I just want you to notice, just for the sake of time, just notice... As I read the reinforcing of these two things, the role of Scripture, the importance of that, the story of Scripture, and the fellowship in regards to having your minds open to who Jesus is. 
All right, let's, let's just finish up here. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. This is Cleopas and maybe his wife or his companion. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what, that, what had happened on the way and how, Jesus was rec- and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. They even made a point. That's how it happened. That's when it happened. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself, I'm sure with a huge grin, stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. I'm sure he is having a ball with this. Then he said, when he said this, he showed him his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe, okay, this is awesome. It's not that they didn't believe, it's why. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, right? I mean, that's why, this is just too good. This is just, this just can't. This is how I feel about the gospel. This is why some of you won't receive it. Because you look at your sin and you go, no way. It's just, there's no news that good. There is no news that suggests that I'm okay after what I've done. You're in the same, you're in this same boat. You don't believe because of joy and amazement. You can't handle it. Can't handle it. And so you reject it. And so he asked them, do you you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Showing he's not a ghost. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And it doesn't stop there. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning right here in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God experience there's just there's so much here but we'll finish this with uh with just what hit me here honestly i'm finishing luke i'm feeling like i'm leaving an old friend now after these six months but uh but here's what hit me these are the words in this last passage of luke's book that stood out to me they're all there all these all these words watch peace joy amazement understanding, repentance, forgiveness, power, blessing, worship, and then finally, he's already said joy, but then it adds great joy. All all of these are 
the fruit I've experienced in my life because I've pursued Jesus. I just read these as this book ends. And I, that's, this is, that's true. This is why I follow Jesus. This is some of the perks of following Jesus. It's all this. And so, not, not perfectly. It's not like it's not attacked and interrupted, but I'm, I'm telling you, church, look at that list. If that is not, like, the main theme of your life, if these aren't your primary experiences, that, of course, things happen, and you have days where you're not present with these, but in ever-increasing fashion, these define you. They define how you are and who you are and, and what's happening in your life and your daily experience. If, if these are not in increasing measure, more and more becoming the major theme of your life, Luke has some really good news for you. There is a story that says that's available to you. And so if, if this is not like the defining characteristics of your life in ever increasing measure, you might need to go back and examine and I'll just have you examine the two things he highlighted. Are you immersed in the story of Scripture? And are you sharing in the fellowship of Christ? Because that's where you recognize Jesus. That's where these things come. That's the context. And listen, this is not something that you look at and hear me say, if this isn't the normal experience, then what you hear is, then you're not a good Christian then you're not good enough. This isn't a list of rules that you need to white-knuckle it. Man, I need, to, I need to try real hard to feel forgiven. I need to work real hard to, to repent, to find the motivation to go from the way I'm living to this other way and change the trajectory. i got to work really hard to, to have power, right? That's just so contrary to what's being said, even that one especially. like It's not your power. That'll just make you tired. And if you convert someone to that kind of Christianity, then you're going to make them twice the son of hell as you are. That sounds like strong language, but that's the language Jesus used in Luke about the Pharisees who converted people to a getting it right type Christianity. You want to get it right? Believe. Believe in the one that he sent. Then this power comes in. And this is how we end. He, he talks about his promise. Verse 49, I'm going to send you what my father promised. God has promised all these things, but not through your power, not through your trying harder. Okay, not through you being church, churchy enough, religious enough. None of that. Not through your discipline, but through himself through his Holy Spirit. He doesn't mention the Spirit here, but that's what the Father had promised. It's precisely what he's talking about. And that Holy Spirit will come, and then you will be clothed with power. It is not on you. It is just offered to you. That's the message of Luke. He off, he's offering you Jesus, our good, good Father is, and life to the full that lasts on into eternity. It's yours. And as our elders and ministers move around the room, if, if there's something stirring in you, if your heart is burning within you, do not ignore that. React to that. And if you don't know how, come to us. We'll walk with you through it. And we'll try to help you figure out what's your next step 
towards hope and life and light. Let's sing and let's praise this good, good father.